0: Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free.
1: Once again, welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I understand today we're going to be talking about not just common law, but one of the most important battles in Western
0: civilization regarding common law. I think that's going to be a very interesting subject today. And I know some people think history is boring, <laughs> but they need to understand that there is a meaning to history. The reason people think history is boring is that commonly it's just taught as a bunch of uncollected facts that are random and don't really lead anywhere and don't really mean anything. But when we teach that history has have meaning, it comes alive for us. And that's what I'm hoping to do today, that history, if you look at it from the Marxist perspective, is, of course, it's the history of the class struggle, and that's nonsense. If we look at it from the Darwinian standpoint, it's the survival of the fittest throughout history, natural selection related to Marxism, but again, nonsense. A Hindu view of history is that it is cyclical, that it moves in circles, repeats itself, but that it doesn't really lead anywhere and doesn't really mean anything. Some say history doesn't move in circles, but it does rhyme. In other words, events do repeat sometimes, especially if we don't learn from our previous mistakes. But from a biblical and a Christian standpoint, history needs to be viewed as the sovereign hand of God at work in human affairs. That's why we can call history his story. That's what it's all about. God's hand at work. And we see that in the story of Israel. We see it in Israel. There is Israel repeatedly falls away from God, but God lovingly brings them back sometimes to judgment but that he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our redeemer, to die for our sins, and that this particular age is an age in which we are looking forward to his return. But we're going to look at history right now in terms of the development of our common law, a common law that has biblical roots, that has some Greek and Roman influence, but I'm gonna suggest to you that that is a minor influence compared to other influences, that has a Celtic influence to it, an Anglo-Saxon influence, even a a Viking influence. But we're gonna look primarily at the Anglo-Saxon influence today. And I think one of the things that we need to understand about the development of the common law as we look to Europe is that for thousands of years in Northern Europe, it was a struggle between two Indo-European groups, the Celtic people and the Anglo-Saxons. Where do these people come from? I'll suggest to you that most historians will agree that there was an Indo-European migration that came out of the Caucasus Mountains, north of Turkey, somewhere around 2000 BC. That migration went in a number of different directions. Some of them went to the Southeast and they became the Brahmin caste of India. Some of them south into Iran and became the Persian people who were racially and ethnically quite different from most of the rest of the Middle Eastern people who were Semitic. Some of them went down to the southwest and became the Greeks, and a little further southwest and became the Romans. Others went northwest and became the Celtic people, and others went northwest but not quite as far west, and they became the Anglo-Saxon people, and the Nordic people of Scandinavia would be essentially part of that group. To understand these people, well, Shane Leslie, Sir Leslie was a cousin of Winston Churchill and wrote extensively about this, and he said, the underlying theme of English history is the conflict of Celt and German, he's the word I'll just say German, as their conjunction has been the source of almost all British genius and glory. And These are two nations, two ethnic peoples, but similar in many ways, different though in some ways And the difference. Leslie capsulizes the difference in a way that is very perceptive, although maybe not precise. He says the Teuton, that is the German, has craved the absolute, as the Celt has craved the infinite. If you ever try to systematize Celtic mythology, you'll understand why it's more infinite than absolute. It's impossible to synthesize. German mythology is much easier to synthesize as in Norse, which, of course, is related to the German. Leslie says, in the action and reaction of Celt, Celt and German lies the wolf of history, The terms must be used elastically, for properly we cannot speak of a Celtic race or an Aryan race, but there is a Celtic character, which, with a certain dialect, distinguishes the Celtic parts so-called. Likewise, there is a Teutonic aspect of looking on the world. And goes on to explain, attempts to distinguish personal gods among the Celts are unsatisfactory. Druidism and mysticism they possessed, but no definite deities. Luke, the so-called Celtic Apollo, Cain, the Irish Achilles, Modinum, the Celtic Neptune, who gives his name to the Isle of Man, were without organized worship, still less any of the theology surrounding Roman paganism. A vague pantheism satisfied the Celt. For him, there was no specific heaven or hell. His eschatology was coterminous with life. The next world lay westward and was attainable by ship, hence the beautiful phrase going west for death, which has descended the ages. For him, the dead lived on. You look to German mythology. You look to the creation of Valhalla and the creation of the rest of the world by the frost of giants and so on. And you look to the various realms where the various beings dwell Niflheim for the Nibelung or for Utgard for the frost giants or Asgard for the goddesses of the heavens and others like this. But then comes Christianity. As he says, the religion of historic Europe is not Aryan, but Semitic, that is, from the Middle East. Middle Eastern religion of Christianity, in other words, is the religion of Europe. Since its introduction, the Greek has supplied a philosophy to the Judaic husk, and Rome has given it law, but even this wonderful combination was not worthy of the religion of Celt and Teuton. Greece and Rome might satisfy mind and reason, but the Aryan of the North was a mystic whose kingdom was within and could not be approached by formularies or discerned in philosophies. The need of the Aryan mind appeared in the teaching of Christ from the fringe of Asia, from the dead ground, betwixt desert and sea, from among the peculiar people whom neither Egypt nor Babylon could destroy, came the Aryan prophet. When he speaks of Christ as the Aryan prophet, he does not mean that Christ was Arian, he means that he became the prophet that the Aryans of the north eventually came to worship. The history of the world changed when the chosen of the small c rejected the chosen of the capital C and Europe accepted what Asia could not keep. Hence, Christendom, the supreme romance of all religion was with the pale thorn-crowned Jew, went up to the banquet of the high Aryan gods and poured gall in their cups, and bade the northern warriors drink his blood and not the blood of their enemies, and left a handful of nails in place of Thor's hammer. Never did so divine a ghost to fight the fright of pagan feast, even in infinite time, and among myriad worlds, this could happen only once. Greek philosophy and culture, Roman law and dominion, and later the mystical enthusiasm of the Celt, and the untired strength of the German, passed under the yoke of the Galilean. The fresh, barbaric, unpolluted people of North Europe, by different ways and times, entered into their Christian heritage, and recreated the Roman Empire in their stride. In the movements which seethed Europe, in the centuries between the fall of the Roman Empire and the first millennium. Both Celt and German played their various parts. Between them, they lifted the first fabric of European Christendom at a time when the Greek mind was going to seed and the Latin lay effeminate and effete. The Irish legend says that Christ looked northward from the cross. And so we see Northern Europe at various stages, embracing Christianity. But before they do, they have embraced a common law system of government that is decentralized. It is considered to be God-centered in the sense that God is the author of their laws. They're not Christians, that they believe that all law comes from God and therefore it is unchanging they believe in the local government by the local Vitan or town council, every free man in the town belonged to that town council. And then leaders of the various town councils would meet together in the larger parliament called the Vitan Gamot or the large parliament. That's how the leaders, that's how the leadership was selected. And that, is how the government took place. They had what was called the common law. Common law because it was considered to be the common possession of the people. People understood this law and they followed it. And in fact, as the bit on met, and it met twice a year, but at the town meetings, they would elect a law speaker for a three-year term, the law speaker kind of like a judge or a council president and at each council annually he was required to recite one-third of the common law from memory in the presence of people who had been previous law speakers themselves and who had been hearing it recited all their lives so if he got a word wrong they'd correct him in this way law became common common law it became the law of the people but let's suppose now that You are a young German farmer. Let's say that you live around 9 AD, 2000 plus years ago. You're a farmer. You live in a compound. People didn't live in farmhouses in those days. They live in farm compounds usually with several other families, probably related, other farm compounds not too far away. Your ambition is to farm, to prosper, to marry, to raise children to live by the old Teutonic or Germanic code, a code that stressed valor in battle, the duty to defend one's family, one's community against all enemies, the responsibility to keep one's word, to be hospitable to strangers. You lived under this common law system. You perhaps were an elder yourself in the town council, the Ditton. You worshipped the pagan pantheon of gods, who, unlike the gods of the East and unlike the gods of the Celts even, were personal gods with personal names. And this is the way you've lived, the way your ancestors have lived for centuries, and the way you expect that your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren on and on are going to live for a time immemorial to come. But there is change in the air and the change is coming from rome to the south the romans are bringing another concept of law and government that law is centralized that rulers rule not by the consent of the people but by imperium that is by an innate right to rule and they are conquering throughout europe southern europe has largely fallen into roman control and well, the southern German tribes are holding to their German identity to some extent. They're adopting Roman law and the law codes that we see in southern Germany, like the Visigothic Code, the Goths of the West, and with their Visigothic Code and in Spain and the, of the East, the Goths that live in the East and so on, the Ostrogoths and so on the Franks with their Salic Code and so on. It's essentially Roman law, but with a few Germanic trimmings. But up north of the Rhine, north and east of the Rhine, there, the German tribes are still independent. Rome is claiming authority over them, but they haven't acceded to that control. And they're still being governed under the old Germanic common law. But now something interesting is happening, something exciting. And that is that a German chieftain has come back home to Northern Germany. His name is Hermann, or as the Romans would call him, giving him a Roman or Latin form of his name, not Hermann, but Arminius, Arminius. He wants to preserve Northern Germany from Roman conquest. He's uniting the German tribes, the Marsi, the Cheruskins, which is his tribe, the Shati, the Mukhtari, and others. He wants to unite these tribes together and unite them to resist. And here comes, in 9 AD, the greatest battle of the history of European civilization. Herman knows the German mind because he's been raised among the Romans. He has seen Roman battle tactics. He's seen Roman law of the like. He knows Roman religion, all these things, and he knows how to fight against them. And he has arranged a brilliant tactic. And that is, he has spread a false rumor down to the areas south and west of the Rhine, The tribes north and east of the Rhine have openly rebelled against Roman rule. As a result of this, the Roman Emperor Augustus has set a commander up in order to subdue those northern tribes. As Publius Quintilius Varus, Varus is what we usually call him, he was a nobleman in Rome, He was a skilled diplomat, but he's made a general here even though he doesn't have a whole lot of military experience. He leads three Roman legions to the north in order to subdue Herman and these northern tribes. These are the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th legions. They're getting ready to cross the Rhine, and there are 28 Roman legions total, but these three are going to invade. Now, a Roman legion consisted of about 5,000 men. It was divided into cohorts of about 1,000 men each. Under that was a century with 100 men each. The century was commanded by an officer called a centurion. Besides these 15,000, the three legions of 5,000 each, we have officers, cavalry. We have supply ranks. We have medics and so on. So we're talking about an armed force here of some 16,000 to 20,000 men. The Romans used a form in battle that was called the maniple. It was similar to the Macedonian or Greek phalanx, but not quite as tight as the phalanx and therefore more flexible, especially on an even ground. The Roman soldier was probably the most disciplined soldier the world had ever seen. He was in superb physical condition. He would march carrying an 80-pound pack on his back. In addition to that, he would be carrying or wearing some 70 pounds of weapons and armor. Imagine that you've been marching with that 80-pound pack, and then you're ready to fight, you shed that pack, and now all you have is the 70 pounds of armor and you feel light as a feather. And they would fight with a metal helmet that covered the head, the ears, and the neck. They would carry a gladius, that's the term for the Roman style of short sword. It was a rather short sword, but being short, it was good for close infighting. They use a rectangular shield. And when the rectangular shields of a Roman rank would lock together. They would be virtually impenetrable. They had standard berries who carried their banners with the eagles on top of the banners, and these banners were thought to have supernatural powers. They were fighting for the governing force, SPQR as it was called, the Senate, the Senatus Opulus K. Romana, the Senate of the people of Rome, and they were indeed a very, very formidable force. Now, Herman knew he didn't have the manpower or the trained soldiers and weapons to face the legions in open battle out in the field, which was the common way of fighting in the ancient world. Armies would face each other across the field. He knew that he didn't have the power to do that. His warriors were brave, and they were Large and fierce and disciplined, but untrained in battle to the extent that the Romans were trained. We don't know the exact size of his army, but probably comparable to that of the Romans. And so Herman very wisely takes advantage of the terrain and he chooses the battlefield. Bear in mind, he is a battle commander. Varus of the Romans is not. He chooses this battlefield carefully, and it is in the Tudorberg Forest. Now, there in Tudorburg Forest, there is a road that goes through Tudorberg Forest. It is fairly narrow, so that only about eight soldiers can march abreast on the road. All of this means is that His columns, his cavalry, his wagons, and so on are stretched out for miles as they are marching along this road. To the south, there is a large hill known as Calcreas Hill. To the north, there is what's called the Great Bog, or kind of like a swamp, filled with trees and so on. They're marching along, the Germans are positioned behind fortifications that they've developed on the hillside and others stationed at fortifications out in the bog itself, and they are ready to strike. God, or maybe the pagan gods, I don't know who to credit this for, also was involved in another way. He caused a torrential downpour at this time all of which leads to a position for attack.
1: Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, we pulled a cliffhanger. You were describing the Battle of Tudorburg Forest. (laughs) And and, uh, right at that moment, we had to take a quick break, but now we're back. Please resume.
0: Okay, let's look at the situation once again here. There on Calcrease Hill, he's probably got about 5,000 warriors behind the earthworks that he has built. There are the woods on the hillside about 7,000 are on the northeast slope of the hill, probably about 1,000 at strategic points in the marsh, and here are the Roman armies marching right between them, stretched out over a great distance in the midst of this torrential downpour. Peter S. Wells writes about this in a book titled, The Battle That Stopped Rome. He says, the Germans waited nervously behind the odd wall Some of the older men who had fought against the Roman legions during the campaigns of Drusus and Ahenobarus and Tiberius, or who had lost kinsmen in battles with those armies, hated the Romans with a passion and were eager to attack the troops and to kill as many as they could. But most were frightened, even terrified, at the prospect of confronting the dreaded Roman legions in face-to-face combat. But then Herman gives the signal and the attack begins. Barrage of spears thrown through the air. Wells estimates that each of these 5,000 warriors behind the earthworks could have thrown one spear with accuracy every four seconds. So within 20 seconds, the Roman legions could have been struck with as many as 25,000 spears. He writes, within 10 seconds of the start of the spear barrage The marching units disintegrated into chaos. The attacked soldiers stopped walking in order to try to defend themselves since they were marching in close formation and few could see much beyond the men immediately around them. Those behind kept marching forward and crashed into their fellows. At first, soldiers farther back in the column were unaware of what was happening toward the front and they kept pressing on. Like a chain reaction highway crash, men piled into one another Wounded, dying, and already dead men quickly covered the track, making movement increasingly difficult for the others. The scene was one of complete chaos, spears falling like hail, men collapsing and gasping, even those not yet wounded struggling to remain on their feet, and occasionally frenzied horses and mules crashing through the swarm of troops. Within minutes, thousands of Roman soldiers lay dead or dying, pierced by spears, while others struggled to stay on their feet and to use their shields for shelter. With a deafening war cry, the Germanic warriors then leaped over the earthworks and charged into the Roman ranks. Wells writes, for the first time in their lives, they saw Roman legionaries, representatives of the imperial power that marched with impunity through their lands, bribing their chiefs and subverting their politics, and now they were powerless and helpless. Some believe the battle was over within about an hour. Other believe it may have stretched out over three days. Probably the outcome was clear within the first hour, but skirmishing continued for three days as Roman survivors fought their way back to the Rhine. But this is clear. Hermann and his Germanic warriors had won a resounding victory. Of the 15 to 20,000 Roman soldiers, less than a thousand survives. German losses were about five hundred killed, about fifteen hundred wounded. The news of this defeat caused consternation in Rome. Suetonius, in his work at the time, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, wrote that the Emperor Augustus banged his head against the palace door, shouting, vara legion Rede, that is Quintelius Varus, give me back my legion rather than face the disgrace of defeat. And one of the reasons Roman generals were very successful is if they failed, whether it was their fault or not, they would probably be executed when they returned home. And so Varus committed suicide. And even though their standards were recovered, the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions were never restructured. And that is unique in Roman history. So what does this mean today? What it means today is that, well, southern Germany, the area south and west of the Rhine, was under Roman control and under the influence of the centralized system of of Roman law. Those areas north of the Rhine and east of the Rhine, and that included Scandinavia, they were forever free of the influence of Roman culture, Roman religion, and Roman law. And they continued that Celtic, or rather that Germanic common law system. So what does that mean to us today? I thought our law came from England, not from Germany. Here's what it means. you recall that during this time, Britain is controlled by the Romans. Although the area of the western part of Britain, Wales, and north of Britain, the Scots and Picts, and then the island to the west, Ireland, Rome never ventured into those areas. In fact, the emperor Hadrian, even built recall Hadrian's Wall, parts of which still stand today as a barrier against the Scots of the north. Interestingly, he had mapped it out very carefully, so the narrowest area between England and Scotland is where he built that wall. But anyway, as we move several centuries after this, moving from 9 AD to about 450 AD, Rome has now decided that it is overextended. Rome is in decline now. And so it is starting to recall the legions and to abandon some of the territory that it has previously held. And in the early 400s AD, Rome has decided that they need to recall the Roman legions out of Britain and move them back to the continent. This means that the British people who are Celtic, they're Celtic Britons at this time, that they are no longer under Roman rule, but also they are no longer under Roman protection. And so they are facing raids and attacks from the Scots and the Picts to the north and from the Irish to the west. And it is around this time that we see this man history and legend, which kind of come together here, King Arthur. King Arthur is knights at the round table and so on. We don't really know for sure whether Arthur is a real historical figure or not. I personally believe he probably was a real historical figure, although there's a lot of legend, some Celtic, some Germanic, that is mixed into the King Arthur stories as well, but there does to have been a war chief at this time, Aurelius Artorius, or several other names like that that are given, who probably defeated the Germanic forces at the Battle of Mount Baton. But before that, here's something that had happened that the Britons, according to the way history was taught when I was growing up, They were under attack from the Scots and the Picts and others, and so they issued a call to these northern tribes in Germany, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes of Denmark. These people who had thrown off the Romans hundreds of years earlier and were still following their Germanic common law, and they asked them to come to England as mercenaries to help them to subdue the Scots and the Picts. And they did so. Hengist and Horsa, two German brothers who were chieftains, led the Angles and Saxons and the Jutes there onto the island of Britain to defend the British Celts against the Scots and Picts and the Irish. And I say, that's the way history was taught when I was growing up. There is question today as to whether they were actually invited or whether they came on their own and invaded, but at any rate, they did come. And they did manage to subdue the Scots and the Picts and managed to restore peace to Celtic Britain. But then they told the British Celts, you know, you've got a nice Island here. We like it very much and we're staying. In fact, we're not only staying, we're taking over. And if you want to stay here, you can be our vassals. And so they do so. And as a result, Britain becomes the land of the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes. And we call it Angle Land or England. It's divided into six kingdoms, seven kingdoms, I'm sorry. We have among these kingdoms, the Saxon kingdoms of Essex, which means East Saxony and South Saxony or Sussex and West Saxony or Wessex. We have Anglo, Anglo kingdoms, which are called Northumbria and East Anglia and Mercia. And then we have the Jute kingdom that is called Kent. And these are each under a king, and eventually they all come under a high king. And under their view, this king gets his authority from God, but he is not a god himself. In the Middle East, kings were regarded as gods, but not to the Angles and the Saxons. And they practiced a very decentralized system of government. The the country was divided into shires. Each shire was to have roughly a thousand people, although, of course, that changes, a thousand families, and that changes as people multiply. Each shire is headed by an earl, or as the Scandinavians called him, a Jarl. And he has an assistant under him called the Reef. He's the enforcer, he's the tough guy. He's the guy that will go out and arrest people and break up fights and things like that. And So, he's the reef, and he's the reef of the Shire. He is the Shire Reef. And if you say Shire Reef enough times, what do you get? You get Sheriff. That's where we get our word Sheriff. Under these Shires are divided into roughly a hundred families headed by a hundred man, 50 families under that by a vill man who is the head of a village, and Every 10 families under that, a tithing man, where we get our word tithe, and anyway, this decentralized system is very similar to the way Jethro, in the book of Exodus, told Moses that he should set up a system of judges, justices of the peace over every 10 families, and municipal judges over every 50, and county judges over every 100, and... Appeals judges over every thousand, and then Moses himself as the Supreme Court. And each of these shires has its own community and council leaders called the viton. When they all meet together, again, they are called the viton Gamote, and the English Parliament goes back to the old Anglo-Saxon viton Gamote. And then in 890 A.D., five or four hundred years after this, that, Kel- or that Anglo-Saxon leader, Alfred, who we call Alfred the Great, drafts a Book of Dooms, that is, doom is an old Anglo-Saxon word meaning law or judgment, and so he sets up a legal code, the first written legal code to govern all England called the Book of Dooms. He begins it, by this time they are Christians, and he begins it with a recitation of the Ten Commandments. Now the Vikings have been coming in from the Northeast, and as they come in, they've been taking territory. They control a good deal of Scotland, a good deal of Ireland. In fact, King Olaf the White was the one who founded Dublin. But anyway, so Alfred has to fight against the Vikings. Finally, he drafts a peace with King Gudrid and called the Treaty of Wedmore, which says, We're gonna set up this law that cuts diagonally across England. That which is Northeast is called the Dane law where Viking law governs. And that which is Southwest is England where the Anglo-Saxon law governs. The Danish law, the Viking law and the Anglo-Saxon law were very similar. In fact, the Viking law was a little more decentralized even than Anglo-Saxon law was. Oh, and then Alfred says, oh, and King Gudrun, one thing else, if you're going to live here in England, you see, this island is a Christian island, and you and your fellow Vikings are going to have to become Christians. And so Gudrun agrees, and at least outwardly, they accept baptism and become Christians, and I'd like to believe many of them genuinely became Christians. And so this is England under the Anglo-Saxon common law and some say it was way too decentralized to be effective. I would only point out that we have a very centralized country across the channel, France, and yet decentralized England with a population of 4 million was regularly able to fight off France with a population of 17 million, so it seemed to work pretty effectively, I would say. But then we have the Norman invasion William the Conqueror comes in, and this is a complex story, too. How much time do we have left? Do we have time to talk about William the Conqueror and the Normans? Yeah, yeah, we have about uh, seven minutes. How much time do we have left? About seven minutes. Okay, well, let's talk about that. They themselves have some Viking ancestry, but they have taken over this island or this peninsula that we call Normandy, and they have adopted Frankish law, and they're really probably much more French than they are Viking. And in 1066, the English king, Edward the Confessor, dies. And so we go to the Vittangamote to determine who is going to be the next king. And there are essentially three contenders for the throne. One is William the Conqueror, William the Duke of Normandy, who says that he was promised the throne by King Edward the Confessor. But then we have Harold Godwinson, who in terms of descent is probably has the strongest claim to be the true descendant of Edward the Confessor. And then we have another complainant, and that is a king from Norway, Harold Hardrada, Hardrada means hard ruler, and anyway, Harold has claim also, and mainly his claim to the throne, is that he's got a couple hundred Viking ships sitting out there armed and ready for battle. Well, they fight a battle called the Battle of Stamford Bridge between Harold Godwinson and Harold Hardrada. And I should add that the parliament, the Mote, has recognized Harold Godwinson as the next king But anyway, in this hard battle, Harold Godwinson finally wins, although it's a very difficult battle. But here they are up in the northeast coast of England, having just succeeded in defeating the Vikings. And now they learn that William the Conqueror has landed there on the southern coast. Here is where I suggest that Harold Godwinson made his fatal mistake. He should have waited, stayed in place, and waited for William to come to him. Because his army was depleted, and all the losses there at Stanford Bridge, his army was exhausted from battle, and a hard day's battle, it takes weeks to recover from a hard day's battle. But instead, he feels the need to go down and face William there at Pevensey and the southern coast, and through another torrential rain, he marches his already exhausted and depleted army for three days to meet William down there at Hastings. The battle takes place, it's 1066 AD. Again, it's a hard-fought battle, and for the end of the day, it doesn't there's no clear winner. And if Harold at that point had simply held in all his forces. Could use the night to regather strength and bring in reinforcements from the countryside. But something happens, and that's that William feigns a retreat. Many of Harold's irregulars, not his regular disciplined troops, but the irregulars, the reservists or militias fighting for him, less disciplined and less knowledgeable in the way of battle, they immediately break ranks and charge after William only to find that it's a trap and they're being ambushed. And as a result, Harold is killed in the battle and it's a clear victory for William the Conqueror and the Normans. And as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records for that day, Anglo-Saxon England was no more. William becomes king, but like the Normans, he wanted a much more centralized form of government. He puts into effect what's called the Doomsday Book, written a few years thereafter, which is a code of laws, but much more. It records all the deeds to all property in England. That way he knows who owns what property so that he can confiscate property and give it to his Norman nobles. And so for years thereafter, we see a struggle in England between the Anglo-Saxons who control most of the countryside, the gentry and so on, and who have the support of the Celts who remain, and also the Vikings who remain, fighting against the Normans, who are the centralized power and control of the throne. All of this comes to a head in 1215, when King John, a Norman king, seeks to be a tyrant, and as a result, an Anglo-Saxon, possibly with Viking ancestry, Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, coming from north of the Danelaw, gathers the the Angles and the Celts and the Vikings together, gathers his barons and bishops, instructs them on their duty to resist King John's tyranny, drafts the Magna Carta, and forces King John to sign that Magna Carta there at Runnymede in 1215 and basically says you're going to sign this document or else we're going to throw you off the throne when you're going to be looking for a job and anyway john signs and the magna carta considered one of the great treaties in the advance of human rights in the world if you look to the magna carta it is not so much a radical new document as it is simply a reassertion of the ancient God-given rights of Englishmen under old Anglo-Saxon law. These battles will continue, but 1215, the Magna Carta is an important milestone in the continued development of the common law. Understand though that that common law doesn't originate then. It goes back to the Anglo-Saxon England, which goes back to the Anglo-Saxons in Germany which goes all the way back to Herman the Liberator, there at Tudorburg Forest, there in 9 AD. There in Calcries Hill, there in Tudorburg Forest, you'll see a pavilion. On the top of it, you'll see a statue of Herman. He is facing to the south and waving a sword in defiance against Rome. Meanwhile, in Newell, Minnesota, a German community about 70 miles west of St. Paul, the capital, you will see on Herman Hill there a statue of Herman the German there, as they call him, and he is facing east, waving that sword toward the east in defiance against Roman tyranny, and perhaps in the process also in defiance against the tyranny of Washington, D.C. to the east, and maybe the Minnesota capital, St. Paul, as well. It's important that we understand these origins of our rights and liberties. They're the gift of God, but they are secured for us to Anglo-Saxon law, way, way back in the Battle of Tuderburg Forest. That may be one of the best history lessons that I have ever heard.
1: Thank you. I really, no, I know, I really, really appreciate that. This valuable. Because you you hit on a lot of different uh, things here that uh, are familiar to me, the Magna Carta and and you know the the Romans, uh, the shift of power, all of it. But the details that you have filled in, I think, are just remarkable. And uh, anyway, thank
0: you. That was uh, that was time well spent. Well, thank you. It's been a joy to share this with an audience that I trust will be receptive and hope to talk more about the development of common law as time goes on.